Hello, and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty. Well, very exciting. This week is our hundredth episode. So I want to say a huge thank you to all our guests in that time and an even bigger thank you to all of our listeners. I didn't present all of the 100 episodes, but I have done a fair few. And it is such an honour to be involved in the podcast and to know that people are finding it interesting and useful. A further plea that if you are enjoying it, please do rate, review and subscribe because it does help other people find out about us. Today, I'm talking to Lurk Menzies about his 12 years running the Think and Action Tank, now known as the Centre for Education and Youth. Loic and I talk a little bit about what's changed in education and schools over that time, and he shares his thoughts about the hollowed out system, the importance of looking after young people who are on the margins, and his new book about that. Uh, We talk a little bit about exams and pupil voice as well. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did talking to Loic. And as ever, our reminder that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around topics. The views my guest and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. Today, I'm joined by Loic Menzies, who is CEO of the Centre for Education and Youth. Hi, Loic. Hi, nice to see you. How are you doing? Great to have you with us. And we've we've worked with you and the team at the Centre for Education and Youth um, a lot on the podcast. So it's really lovely to have you here in, in person and have a bit more of a conversation with you. So can you tell the listeners a bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm Loic and I'm um, and I've been in the education and youth sector for most of my life, actually. So I um, started off as a youth worker back when I was a teenager and then decided to go and see another bit of a sector by becoming a teacher uh, and then got really more interested in some of the kind of system level uh, things that go on in the education and youth sector in policy uh, and in research. And um, so I set up the Centre for Education and Youth or LKMCO as it was back in the day, um, and about 12 years ago. So yeah, that's, that's been my journey. And what was your overall kind of plan when when you did that and founded LKMCO? Well, that kind of assumes that there was a plan, which I'm not <laughs> sure there was, <laughs> which is probably a bit of a theme. I think um, looking back, there were definitely things I cared about, uh, and there were was interested in um but I wasn't necessarily sure how I was going to pursue that so there wasn't really a plan as such I think um you know as I, as I said having been a youth worker and being a teacher and having kind of an interest in seeing all the different things that impact on young people um I was I was uh, leaving the classroom knowing that I that I was still passionate about those things uh, but wanting to look at it all from a different angle um and so um so I stepped out of the classroom to do that, but I didn't know how I'd go about doing that. Um, and I didn't know how interested I would end up becoming in, in things like in research. Uh, so that came as a bit of a surprise. Um, and and so it kind of emerged from there what we ended up doing as a Centre for Education Youth, really just as, as we went, recognising that people really needed the kind of insights we were able to provide, which 
link together what was going on in practice and what was going on in policy and what was going on in research. And you, you, you mentioned you're kind of um, surprised there almost about the kind of appetite um, for, for that. And you've obviously carved quite a specific niche for yourself as, a, as not just a think tank, um, but a think <laughs> and action tank. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think if you think of a, a traditional think tank that, that tends to be quite Westminster focused, um, that can be quite, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a field in which um, quite technical considerations dominate and people think about the politics of it, people think of, um, um, yeah, about public policy in quite a technical sense sometimes. Um, and we brought together a team who were all former teachers, former youth workers, people who, who knew the sector inside out, um, but who were still interested in um, taking a really rigorous approach to looking at research and evidence um, to understand what was going on and think of solutions. And who were political, politically savvy enough to understand the, the real world of politics and policymaking. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think as an organisation, that that's meant that we inhabit very much a quite uh, very much a unique niche, um, as as you put it. So, um, yeah, that's how it's how it's come together, really. And and I think in lots of ways, that's um, you know, you have a much uh, broader appeal and and following than those organisations that are classically just kind of looking at, at policy and 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 mainly speaking to to government. Um, and you know, I, I feel like as as, as somebody who um, is 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 part of the education sector, but not in a school myself, it must be frustrating sometimes for people to sort of feel like, yeah, they people who don't have experience in the classroom making recommendations, or um, there being very little of sort of practical actions that somebody can take now or, or do anything mm. about outside of an election cycle or a white paper or a green paper or whatever so it feels like a lot of what you do is 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 much more um facing facing the education sector itself is that would that be yeah right? i think it's yeah i think we kind of act as mediators basically you've got very different challenges on either side of the practitioner policy maker divide um so having worked in the classroom i know how busy teachers and school leaders are so I know how hard it is for them to remain connected to some of the big decisions that might come to affect them uh, or to feed into that and get their voice heard. So on one hand, I see our, our role as helping helping them out with that. Um, but then on the other hand, have it, I probably underestimated during that time in the classroom just how complicated things are at a policy level. Uh, you know, how difficult it is to design good policy because there are considerations on every side and um, how, how much... Um, how much weight it, 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 there is uh, to the political questions of a time and political appetite and public appetite and so on. And um, so it, it can be it can be hard to appreciate some of those things as a practitioner, too. And um, so I also see part of our role as kind of opening up that black box and helping um, helping practitioners to, to understand why things don't necessarily happen in the, in the way they might want. And, and why some of what might seem like obvious solutions aren't so obvious when you're considering them from a from a Westminster perspective. Yeah, gosh, a lot, a lot um, to think about around that. Um, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, just focusing again on on that point around 
around sort of action and something coming mm. as a result of your research. What, what, what would you say are some of the sort of big achievements that, that you're mm. so proud of from your reports? Yeah, it's an interesting one, because I think one of the things I've come to realise is how action can happen at all sorts of different levels in different ways. Um, and sometimes it's, not, it's actually not even the most concrete and tangible things that are the most important. So when I'm looking at what are the kind of big system level tangible changes and things, and there's certainly things I can point to and things that are really important to me, like we some of our research through our report why teach looking at kind of teacher motivations and so on i know went on to play a really important role in shaping the early career framework for teachers for example um you know plotting out what career paths um in in the education workforce might look like i know that there have been a number of big funding decisions uh, for things like extracurricular provision and that have been shaped by our research where we've kind of mapped out the the level of a disadvantage gap in access to wider activities so there's kind of those big system level tangible shifts that have happened um but then for me when i talk about us being a think and action tank i also mean about the small actions on a day-to-day -day level that practitioners can take and i look at a lot of the charities we work with um, that might be delivering um, interventions in schools and we've done I don't know how many evaluations and reviews for those types of organizations that have just led to small tweaks in their programs to make them more impactful and so things like thinking about how say a tutoring program um, runs training for its tutors and working out how to do that as effectively as possible that those are very micro changes but actually when when an organization is delivering to young people across the country those are things that make a really big difference so those type of actions are important really important to me too we've put together um, a number of um of uh, toolkits for the careers and enterprise company on things like youth social action um, and careers education in primary schools and those are being accessed by teachers around the country and and helping to inform their practice so those kind of changes are important um, and then there's a third type of action, which is probably the most intangible of all, which is kind of what I think of as like shaping the zeitgeist. Um, and it's just about affecting the kind of climate of what policymakers in particular are thinking about and caring about. So I think if I look back at when I left the classroom and set up CFEY, you know, it was just in the days of um, Every Child Matters and extended schools and all those kind of things. Um, and then we had a shift uh, in, in policy making um, that focused um, more on kind of how do we deliver um, uh, effective teaching and learning um, on average in a way. Um, and we've done a lot of work helping to kind of mitigate that by retaining um, an eye to what happens to young people on the margins, which is kind of the title of the, the book we're soon gonna publish. Um, and I think helping to maintain keep banging that drum and maintain a focus on kids who fall outside of the average um, or helping to remind people that, uh, that you can't forget special schools when you're talking about the education system and you can't forget about small minority groups of, of pupils. All of those kind of things have helped to shape uh, the general um, atmosphere in, in the education debate. And I think that in a way, that's most one of the most important things we've done over the years, even though it's huge, it's, it's quite intangible. Yeah, like you say, a huge, a huge range of different impacts there. And, and coming up for 12 years now, 
um, and uh, time for you to, to take up a, a new challenge. But I was sort of reflecting as I was putting the questions together, one, how, how old that made me feel. So thank you for that. Um, but, Sorry. <laughs> but two, how, you know, a lot has changed in that time. And mm. obviously now we're kind of living our lives at crazy fast forward uh, pace. Um, but but sort of thinking back to 2008, nine, <laughs> um, what, are, what do you think, would what would you say were some of the biggest policy or kind of practice shifts that we've seen in, in that last um, 10, 12 years ago in education mm. and, and youth services? So, um... I would say we've definitely seen um, a shift in expectations. Um, so uh, when I left teaching, we were we were in the era of and uh, and taking some pupils and entering them for uh, for qualifications that were equivalent to four GCSEs or whatever it was. But we'd end up teaching them in a matter of days or um, those types of. Uh, we were in in a period when it was. Um, it was almost acceptable to say that uh, that, that certain certain pupils should be put towards certain routes, and that certain things were good enough for some pupils. Um, and I think there's been a big shift there in the raising of expectations and in, and in, in the belief that we should be we should be aiming for all pupils to achieve something that we would be proud of for our own children. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, and you know, it's had in that with that there've been there have been disruptive effects of that um, and it's and it's caused problems some of the ones I was touching on in terms of inclusion and so on um, but uh, but I think there's something to be welcomed in that um, I think in terms of pedagogy we've had a, a, a big shift in terms of the recognition of the importance of knowledge and curriculum uh, those have been big um, big shifts in terms of the priorities in the sector um, but on the downside uh, I think what we've also seen is the real stripping back of the services uh, schools depend on um, and and the need for schools to end up filling a vacuum um, in what I kind of refer to as a hollowed out system um, where where everything falls on schools um, and many of the many of the services that schools used to be able to call on to prepare pupils to make sure they were ready to learn in the classroom are gone um, and you can really see the the impact of it, kind of 10 years of austerity or so have, have had in terms of those services yeah i think it's it's interesting because um one of the things that was going through my mind as you as you said that particularly around um raising uh, expectations and aspirations for all for all pupils and thinking you know maybe what we've seen there is um enough enough schools who can achieve that and um do that in a systematic way and 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 share that so that you then start to get um you know more 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 people believing that's possible um mm. because obviously that's a key key part of expectations um, and, you know, um, short, shorthanding that massively to say, you know, trusts have been involved in a lot of that activity. Um, and then thinking, well, obviously in that in that time period as well, we've seen enormous growth in the number of schools that have become part of an academy trust. And, you know, um, to, to a greater or lesser extent, providing some kind of central central service there and you know a lot of the conversations we've had on the podcast have been about how how um trusts have 
and, and leaders in trust have felt better supported by working together through the through the pandemic. But that I wonder, you know, does it doesn't mask, as you say, that that stripping away of those external um, services, and we're maybe not talking about that enough. Yeah, because I think that where um, depending on a school's a school or trust's capacity, you know, the state of its budget and so on, it it may be able to rise to that challenge of having to fill in on that hollowed out system, as I call it better or worse depending on it, its circumstances but that results in in certain schools certain trusts and, and certain pupils falling through the cracks um, and and thinking about how we ensure there is the necessary safety net and necessary infrastructure to mitigate that is i think one of the big challenges that we need to take on over the next decade and um, you know um, because because of your own experience and the way that you've set up um, CFEY, you look at um, education and and youth together. Do you think mm. there is there is maybe an issue sometimes in schools and education being seen as the solution to everything without that that wider aspect um, being taken into account? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one of the things I've pointed out a few times recently is just looking at the looking at the effect of a pandemic. Uh, we have a situation where we've got, you know, pupils who need to be have food food provided. We have and schools are having to do that. We have a situation where you know, those people social that we're concerned about the home home life and home situation. So someone needs to check up on the kids while the schools are doing that, as well as trying to work out how to deliver education, as well as trying to work out how to deliver childcare so that parents can go back to work. These are all different jobs, and yet there's no reason why all of those things should be done by schools. Schools remain this kind of universal portal um, in the sense that every child experiences education and every child experiences a school. But you know, that doesn't mean that teachers are the ones, the right professionals to be delivering all of that. And there are always teachers who want to do that that type of work, who want to, want to focus on, on um, broader pastoral considerations and so on. But ultimately, we've also, one of the functions a key function of schools is the delivering of the education and the pedagogical element um, and and it's there's no reason why uh, they should they should have to be doing all those other things when other professionals should be should be being brought in to do some of those things yeah i think it's difficult isn't it because at the end of the day um the as you say that the child the child will present at school and you know is in normal times legally you know um bound to do so and the the teacher or pastoral leader or, or whomever is is there going to be thinking well how is that child's mental health have they eaten yeah and all of these things are going to be a barrier to learning and if i don't solve them immediately and soak mm. that up um then you know what is the point in them being my lesson and yeah. and and it, it just feels that schools are really just caught in this bind um and, and until such time as you can you can start to see um more more involvement and intervention by those those wider social services or, or a sense from a school's perspective that there is resource there for for referrals and, and other activity um to take yeah. place yeah i mean teachers go into go into teaching because they care about their pupils right they're not they're not going to, to look at their pupils and look at their people's needs and say well that's not my job i'm not going to do it they are going to going to act and they should act and and um, 
there's you're not going to make progress with the with the learning uh, unless those things have been dealt with but ultimately teachers shouldn't be left on their own to do those things no and it was really interesting actually um conversation had last week for the podcast um with a, a trainee uh, associate teacher and um he was he was saying that you know um his understanding of the children that he's teaching who who are from disadvantaged backgrounds or have difficulties at home is so much more heightened by this remote learning experience you mm. know whereas previously it might be a, a mark in a mark book but ostensibly all the children are going to turn up in uniform and you know and and look yeah. broadly similar when you can actually see into people's home life in that way or be wow, be made yeah. very aware um you know this child doesn't have this or that piece of equipment or how am i going to solve that problem so yeah you do think that this that this lockdown period is going to um yeah just make make a lot of schools even more aware of the the needs and difficulties of the families um they serve and that this um this issue of the hollowed out system is going to become even even more acute yeah yeah and at the moment i'm not sure we even really have a language to talk about what we mean by those those wider services or you know we stumble over the phrase every time we talk about it we're not even sure quite what we mean we know there's, there's there should be something there but we're not quite sure what it what it should be yeah yeah i mean and and, and you know some of it i think you know strays into sort of parenting um yeah. and uh you know support for particular communities and and these kinds of things which obviously a lot of schools are are doing in their way but um i guess when when it comes to prioritizing or to resourcing it is very difficult to say mm, who's whose role is this anyway um yeah but i mean i guess which I is why you look at something like the kind of west west london children's zone or the uh, reach children's hub and so on that's uh, taken their inspiration from the kind of Harlem Children's Home and so on, so on. Uh, these these are attempts to answer answer those questions, and and there's some of the sort of bright spots and and opportunities for the future. I think. Indeed, and, and you know, it's, it was interesting um, to note Amanda Spielman. You know, when launching the Offset Annual Report, really kind of highlighting this issue of schools being responsible for all these things that aren't really their core business, but there's not really a a, a solution there it's just a no, kind of ongoing no. challenge yeah. um yeah but uh yeah i think in in my in my 12 or so years as a governor i think i think back to you know a school serving um a diverse community we we were able to access a lot a lot more in the way of family support workers activities oh. And, and these sorts of things, which are now, you know, the school's responsibility to run and sustain if, if we wish to. Yeah. Yeah. But I'd hope that, yeah, as we think about what happens post pandemic, um, kind of the, people talk about this debt that we owe to the younger generation and the, uh, how much they've suffered and sacrificed uh, during this period. And I hope that perhaps part of repaying that debt and, and, and fighting some of the potential scarring barriers for the future is about saying actually what is our what is our better offer for, for children and young people in the future as a society indeed and you're sort of bringing us um back to the present day and um thank you for mentioning it earlier but i would definitely say my my consciousness of um the groups of young people or the 
areas that need a light shining upon has definitely come from from you and your work um and you guys have been busier busier than ever over the covid-19 period um and and helping us think through these emerging issues and you've also um written a book um yeah which well, uh, young people on the margins the priorities yes. for action in education and youth so i feel i have to ask what what are those priorities <laughs> I'm still trying to work out a way of just capturing like those priorities in 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 three sentences or something. I'm not quite sure it's ever that simple. We'll just workshop it on the podcast. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but if I think if I kind of uh, whittle it down, um, I think that there's a core theme in there which is about spotting vulnerability earlier. Um, in that we quite often find ourselves having to just tackle the symptoms of an underlying need. Um, so the book is partly about saying rather than just looking at categories of need or categories of young people thinking okay what is it that is making them vulnerable what is it what are the underlying issues um, and how might we identify those earlier so that we can take action earlier so the, you know key priority spotting the need early and responding to it early um, and and part of that is about the the asking why so it's easy to look at um, input, you know, literacy interventions because someone's got a literacy problem. But that, that child might well probably has all sorts of other challenges. And um, the book is about helping practitioners and policymakers to see what might be lying behind some of those needs um, so that those can be tackled um, in, instead. So, you know, the classic example is the is the is this is the fact that you know poor uh, poor people may not may not actually be able to access the the glasses or whatever they need in order to be able to see see the words on a page properly so that they can so that they can read and that's causing a literacy problem you know that's a that's a simple example um but it's about helping people to ask those why questions that lead them to lead them to the solution um and and i think it's, the book is also about not shying away from recognizing the underlying driver of poverty. Um, and I think that there's been a bit too much comfort uh, in just sort of vaguely referring to disadvantage um, because, rather than being honest about the fact that we're talking about a child being poor. Um, and Seb Chapeau just the other day at the round table pointed out we were talking about the digital divide. Uh, and he rem he was very careful to remind people the reason the digital divide exists is because pupils can't afford the devices, um, and and if that that problem wouldn't exist if if they could, um, and so one of the things we look at in there is the is the underlying rate of child poverty, um, and I think the this is a call to policymakers rather than to practitioners, but to say look you you can't just keep putting out these little pots of funding to tackle whatever the latest issue to come out is, you need to think about, put child poverty back on the agenda and, and recognise that tackling child poverty is, is lies at the root of, of these issues. Yeah, and I mean, I, this, and this is 100% me personally, I just have an issue with, with the concept of child poverty because, you know, no children have wealth or money in of themselves it's a direct yeah. response to the family situation that they're in. And I think, yeah, yeah. as you say, um, things that are too focused on on a single issue or a single pot of money or, a you know, a single intervention 
aren't aren't going to aren't going to eradicate that. Yeah, and I think I think we sometimes fall in the trap of thinking that this is a sort of inevitability or that it's pie in the sky to think that that can be dealt with. I mean, when you look at the trends in child poverty over time, it, you can see that it's not so long ago that those rates were falling, uh, and there are reasons why those trends were falling. Um, so we can't, we we shouldn't, we shouldn't be defeatist about thinking that we can't, we can't do that. We can't, that we can't tackle child poverty. It's, it, we've demonstrated that we can reduce it. Exactly, and what is needed is is a much more integrated approach rather than this kind of insular picking off picking off certain things. Um, oh. And you know, um, th- thinking ab- ab- about um, as you say, this this generation of of young people. Um, who I mean, I just I keep I keep thinking back to um, aspects of my own youth, and just thinking, gosh, how would I feel if that was all if that was all remote, or I couldn't do this or that or that? And yeah, heart just goes out to them. Um, but it was I thought really heartening to see um, the other week that so many young people themselves responded to the consultation about exams because I felt like that is exactly what I would want to do if I were if I were yeah. then. Um, and you are brilliant at making sure that young people and their voice really is central to what you do. So kind of interested in, in your thoughts about how, how other organisations and schools can make sure that, you know, people voices is, is heard and what on earth you think should happen this year about exams? <laughs> well, there's two, two big things in that. Nothing major. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, yeah, it was nice to be just a week or two ago, we pulled together a nice round table of young people to talk about the exams that, um, along with the Education Policy Institute to talk about that. So, yeah, I'll be writing up um, what they told us um, this week, actually. So, um, But, yeah, in terms of on a school level about, about pupil voice, um, I guess what I'd say is um, not to over-rely on a sort of replica of traditional political structures. Um, so there's a, there's a place for school councils and so on. Those are, those are great. But... Um, yeah, we've we've seen the challenges that traditional democracy is facing at the moment across the board internationally, and yet we quite often rely on those uh, as our means of securing people voice uh, within schools. So I, I don't think we should be relying on those purely. Um, so one of the things I'd say is to think almost um, more in terms of of youth social action. Um, and uh, you know, we worked on this toolkit with a careers and enterprise company, looking at youth social action and how it um, how we can um, approach careers education uh, through youth social action as well. Um, but think, so thinking about what are the issues that young people uh, care about, and thinking how do you how can you mobilise your pupils and support them to take action on on issues themselves uh, as being one way of generating uh, people voice and that can be quite scary because you are handing over a, a, an amount of, of power uh, to young people and I think to be honest about that how what is what is a school's appetite for handing over uh, an element an element of control there because there's plenty of there are schools in which that's not the thrust of the school and it's not going to happen so uh, we should we shouldn't be pretending uh, it's easy to get into a cosmetic exercise of saying, oh, well, we want to show some people voice, but we don't want to give away any power. Um, well, in, in that case, uh, you've got to ask yourself what you're doing. Um, so if you are comfortable handing over some power, then you, then I think um, thinking about what skills young people need to be uh, effective in having their people voice. So how are you supporting oracy or how are you helping them to understand 
politics, uh, developing political literacy. Um, and then kind of how are you connecting up to the community? So if you're looking at the wider community, so how are you using uh, youth social action and pupils passions for topical issues and issues in my community um, as part of, of part of, uh, of, of demonstrate of allowing people to have their voice. So um, I guess those are just a few, a few thoughts I'd, I'd have on, on people voice within schools. Yeah, really, um, really useful. And we'll put some some links to those um, toolkits uh, as as well. And I imagine that, yeah, just just through the sort of um, this whole this whole process, that it must have been some some really difficult conversations for those for those teaching, especially those exam years, um, where then there are no easy answers, and and feelings must be running very very high, and motivation is a real as a real struggle. Um, and I think also just um, being a quote unquote grown up at this point when <laughs> when there's absolutely no certainty or, um, and no yeah. sense of like, yes, I've got this sorted when you're talking to young people. It's really hard. Um, yeah, yeah. So. Um, so in terms of the exams. Um, so I think there's a kind there's two ways you can answer the what should we do about exams question. One is to think about um, exams within uh, within the current plan and there's one which is actually thinking a bit more widely about what our what our longer term plan is for this this group of pupils in this cohort so um yeah if if we're if we're going to go business as usual uh then you know it's going to be it's going to be a patching job of of coming up with a result to give pupils um which we're going to give the same number slash letter grade uh two um and i think it's questionable how meaning meaningful that's going to be in the current context so i don't think we should be saying to this group this cohort of pupils that this is going to be their last experience of education um because they haven't got a good enough education uh and therefore if we accept that then we need to be working out what education we want to be giving them next year um, and potentially a year after and therefore i in my view this the, the exams are more about helping us well the exam slash the grading uh this year needs to be more about getting them onto the right pathway for next year so that they can actually finish off their education so there will be some young people who are um who've had a, a, uh, who are ready to progress to the whatever the next intended plan was uh whether that be university or or um or post 16 um if we're talking about the gcse cohort um and so um we need to identify whether they're ready to go go on to that and uh, i don't think we need to be giving them a grade this year with apart from just to certify that they're ready to go on to that there might be other pupils who are need in need of more support in which case we need to be identifying what what support uh, they're going to need and getting them on onto the right pathway for that and that's going to take some really big work in terms of making sure we have capacity in 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 colleges uh in in whatever in location um we are going to provide them with that education to get them back on track uh, and that might be online courses or it might be all sorts of things um but i the general principle is i think that rather than trying to come up with uh, a mock-up of a of a normal result we need to be getting them a, a, a result that can actually stand them in good stead for the rest of their lives 
because otherwise we're, we're going to be either saying, oh, well, this is equivalent to what someone would have got another year, but they don't actually know the stuff they need to know. Uh, or you're going to be so giving them a true representation of what they know, in which case they're held back. So neither of those is a good outcome. Um, and we should drop the pretense um, and instead focus on what are we going to do for that cohort of young people next year and how do we make sure we match them to the correct pathway. Exactly so. And it doesn't. And I think it is, um, as you say, about understanding is, is that is that young person equipped for the next step? Yes or no. Mm. And and what does that that look like? Because anything, anything else is just going to be a sort of exercise in in numbers and those yeah, system because, level things leaving the individuals behind yeah yeah we're either certifying a particular achievement but we shouldn't be certifying the achievements from this year because they're not the ones we want people to be leaving with therefore let's not go to through this charade of trying to trying to certify it in on on a category that isn't isn't going to be meaningful yeah and it is i think people just you know searching for something that is that is less painful than last year's but remembering that you know there's last year's experience for these these students and the fact that they've had less time in school than we were talking about last you know so yeah i think yeah and i think the thing that's holding people back is a, is this fear that they these young people are then going to go through life uh, at a disadvantage because they don't have the grades on their on their cv but I don't think they are, whatever you do, they're not going to, this year isn't going to provide them with those meaningful grades on their CV. So you might as well concentrate on making sure that they do go through the rest of their life with, with a meaningful grade based on something else. Indeed, indeed. Um, well, we, um, we wait to see. Um, what, what day are we on? The, the 8th of, 8th of uh, February. Um, yeah. <laughs> if, we, if we have more clarity by the time this goes out, we shall see. Um, and uh it's you know um you're you're as as i mentioned before um move moving on to new and exciting challenges but let's say i crowned you an all-powerful minister in charge of education and youth as your next job um what would you do what would be your first steps yeah so i think i'd go back to this idea of the um of the kind of hollowed out system and thinking that uh, I would concentrate on making sure that all schools could access the support they needed to get their pupils ready to learn. Um, so that so that schools could could then concentrate on on helping people to learn, um, knowing knowing that those things uh, had been had been addressed. So uh, that that means access to special educational needs support. It means uh, uh, which some of some of which will come from within the school, some of it which will come out from outside. Uh, you know, the access to the mental health services when they're making a referral, so they're not waiting months or years, um, and and wraparound support uh, so that young people are getting the enriching experiences um, on an equal footing. So something like the kind of extended schools and so on, um, yeah, to make sure that that pupils have, are starting from a much more level playing field uh, when they enter the classroom. Well, there you go. I mean, maybe we just need to pop that in a letter to um, Gavin Williamson. Job done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and anything else you'd like to share with our listeners in closing? I don't think so. Um, no problem. It's having obviously been a yeah pleasure to pleasure to chat and uh, uh, thank you for uh, listening to me <laughs> and my various different thoughts. 
Well, it's been an absolute delight to, to have you on, Loic, and um, have a conversation around some of these um, tricky, thorny issues and understand a little bit more about, about your, your work down the years and um, wish, you, wish you success with recruiting your, um, your successor. And what Yes, a, yeah. exciting times. Yeah, hoping to have some really great candidates. Well, actually, we'll put a link to um, the information about that in the podcast Ooh, yes, as well. Brilliant. Um, this would be a good bit of homework for them to listen to, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, any candidates out there? Um, well, thank you so much for talking to us today. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of The Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doe at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.